free state of Jones, the county in Mississippi that seceded from the war, was led by Newton Knight. But an equally important character, less well known to history, was Rachel Knight. We'll find out more about her when we return on Civil War Talk Radio. On Sound Authors, you can expect the unexpected. Kent Gustafson, Ph.D., author, publisher, professional musician, and now talk radio show host, will not only entertain you, but with new books and guest authors from around the world, will interview talented independent musicians showcasing their fresh new music. Plan to join Dr. Kent and friends each Friday morning at 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern, on World Talk Radio Studio A. Sound Authors, where authors sound off. Once upon a time, there lived three energy hogs. Now, an energy hog is what you have when humans waste energy. One day, the three energy hogs set out to find themselves a cottage. Let's look for leaky windows, said the first energy hog, for he knew that would waste energy. Let's look for leaky doors, said the second. Let's look for a swing set, said the third, for he had more blubber than brains. So they set off down the road. Presently, they came upon a tiny cottage where dwelled a clever girl named Dreadylocks. I open as leaky windows, cried the first energy hog. I open as leaky doors cried the second. I hope it had the bathroom, cried the third, for only his brains were smaller than his bladder. But Dreadilocks liked playing cool games at energyhog.org, and from energyhog.org she learned how to use energy wisely. So the three energy hogs were forced to look elsewhere to waste energy, and had to use the disgusting restroom at the gas station down the road. And the moral of the story is, to use energy wisely, log on to energyhog.org, or waste not, hog not. This public service message brought to you by the U.S. Department of Energy and the Ad Council. World Talk Radio, bringing the world to you. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with Vicki Bynum, author of The Free State of Jones, Mississippi's Longest Civil War. We've been talking about this uh, really remarkable incident in uh, Civil War history, this county in southeastern Mississippi that... Uh, if it didn't technically secede from secession, uh, at least uh, fell into the political and, and, and uh, le- not legal, but political de facto control of a group of uh, deserters uh, or freedom fighters, depending how you want to characterize them, uh, who fought against the Confederate government and formed what has, has come since to be called the Free State of Jones. Uh, Vicki, one of the uh, things I remember from my undergraduate days, which was a long time ago, uh, was that in those days, if you had a Marxian economic construct behind your work, you were you were in. That's all you needed uh, in those days, uh, 30, 35 years ago. Now, uh, in professional uh, academic writing, if you have uh, two out of the three of race, class, or gender, uh, you're usually pretty well off. <laughs> yeah. um, if you can get all three, uh, you're really there. Uh, my my personal feeling is that, that these are fashions that will will continue to come and go. And uh, there are times I've looked with dismay at the the catalog of uh, a conference uh, at OAH or or somewhere, and literally every presentation uh, has the same conceptual framework. They're all race or class or gender or two of the three. Uh, 
it is definitely the trend and has been for some time. Yes. It, it has been. Your work, uh, as an exception to that, one of the problems I find with that is that in trying to reach the general public, uh, it's hard to do that with those frameworks because they're not as interesting to a lot of lay readers as are uh, more traditional historical approaches or just different historical approaches. I think that's true. But this work is an exception. I've heard a rumor that there's a movie deal for Free State of Jones. Is You're absolutely right. Yeah. In fact, the movie is in development now. Um, it's If you go on the, the Internet movie database, the IMDb, yes. it's, uh, it's listed there by the title Free State of Jones, and uh, Gary Ross is producing and directing and writing the script, although he... He will be using my book as one of his sources for information. Uh, they bought the, the, the film rights to the book. But he's basing it more broadly on all of the different works and is going to write his own script. But, uh, yeah, it's in development. I, the rumor I've heard is that they were hoping to cast it by the summertime. Well, that is very exciting. And, uh, you know, one, one never knows what Hollywood will do with a historical story if we will get uh, something like Glory or something like The Patriot or... Uh, you know which end of the spectrum it will fall on in terms. Well, of I did have a quite a long conversa- conversation with Gary Ross, and, and I was pretty happy with with why he wanted to make the movie and and how he viewed the story. I think he may, I think he undoubtedly will take a few liberties. I think we may see a Free State of Jones that did secede formally from the Union, for example. But I think in general he really wants to stay at least true to the story that I see. And of course, some people may not agree with my version, but he seemed to be uh, motivated by a lot of the, the same sorts of interests that you know, led me to write the book. So I'm, I'm hopeful. I'm very hopeful. <laughs> well, that's great. I, I certainly am, too. I know every listener to this show will be going to see that when it comes out. The, uh, well, one of the hooks, certainly, to, to make this a popular story uh, is uh, that there is uh, romance. My wife is always telling me, you know, you've got to put more sex in your books. Well, yeah. you know, there's, there's not a lot there in the Army of the Ohio. Uh, but in, uh, in, in Jones County, uh, the story of, of Rachel and Newton Knight is, uh, is one that, that contravenes all kinds of established boundaries. Oh, yes. Tell us about that. Well, and what's really interesting is I I first started getting interested in researching the pre-state of Jones because my father was from Jones County, and I was soon to learn that the the Bynums were very caught up in the pre-state of Jones on both sides of it. But what I also didn't know was that there that there was this slave woman, uh, Rachel Knight, who was all caught up in it. I mean, the, I, I had not read Ethel Knight's book yet. Uh, Ethel Knight is a local historian, a descendant of the Knight family, who wrote a very, very lurid book about it uh, back in the early 50s. And she did not, she hated Newton Knight. She hated what he represented to the Knight family because she came from the pro-Confederate side of the family. So she exposed the story of, of Rachel and Newt Knight's romance in order to, to basically blacken his re- reputation, sort of literally and figuratively. Rachel Knight was a slave of Newt Knight's grandfather. And during the war, uh, Rachel and, and Newt became uh, collaborators. I mean, she, uh, Rachel Knight was very important, as many slaves were, in aiding uh, those deserters or freedom fighters, however we want to think about them, but in aiding them in, uh, in resisting. Uh, the Confederacy and, and arrest. And what happened is that their relationship uh, did evolve into a romance, but even more complicated is that it also evolved into interracial marriages between several of their children. Not the children they had together, but the children they had had in former relationships. 
so that basically you have a community by 1880 of at least three interracial relationships that then continue on into the 20th century. And the whole mixed-race night community is still very visible, very present, and very cohesive uh, even today, although many descendants of, of, uh, of this mixed-race mixed, uh, community have, have long moved away from the area. But there's still a core community there that trace themselves right back to the Civil War drama of Newton Rachel. And that gave the book just a whole different, uh, I mean, a whole additional uh, story that uh, I think, like you were saying earlier, oftentimes when we just use theoretical constructs of race, class, and gender, it can get pretty abstract and pretty boring. But here, we've got a real human story that encompasses all of those issues, but yet never gets boring. <laughs> no, no. You went to Jones County and talked to some of these descendants. I did. I went and spent uh, a few days there. I went, I've gone to their uh, family reunions and uh, twice. And a few of, uh, especially a few pivotal people have really shared with me. I, I mean, I could never have written up all the chapters on, on that side of the story uh, had they not uh, eventually, you know, come to trust my motives. Because remember, these are descendants who were, were really slandered in the Ethel Knight book, presented as a strange people who, you know, should, should never be allowed to bring an end to segregation because she was writing in 1952. And... They had been pretty burned by that book, and it took quite a while to say, well, really, I'd like to write a very different kind of story. And eventually, at least uh, a good number of them came to trust me and provided me with just wonderful uh, information, photographs, memories, all of that sort of thing. Well, the this, this story gives us a, a, an insight into the, <clears throat> the, the social construction of race in a, in a remarkable way, because you use the phrase uh, white Negroes to describe the, the Knight's descendants. Yeah, uh, these are people from the photographs in your book who look to the casual observer uh, to be what we would classify as white uh, in some cases. Mm -hmm. yeah. But according to the laws of Mississippi, uh, at least in the, as late as the 1940s, 1950s, uh, they were legally not white, and that constrained them in all kinds of ways. That's right. And what it created was uh, a whole variety of different sorts of communities and self-identification among the descendants themselves. Uh, there were many who, to escape being classified as, as black, simply left Mississippi and identified themselves as white. I try to avoid using the word pass because it, 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 it implies a kind of an essentialism about having African ancestry that somehow, no matter you know, how white you are, you really are black as if there's something essential about you know, that racial heritage. So what I tried to use are words like how they identify themselves, which mm -hmm. is distinct from how the law identifies them in many cases. And so you had, uh, you had many of them. Uh, well, in fact, I've been in touch with people who had no idea that they had African ancestry until they started doing genealogical research, which led them to the Free State of Jones, which led them to me, and they worked out their genealogy and were quite surprised, but in most cases quite interested to learn that they had African ancestry because they, they, you know, they traced their ancestry back to this community. And so it is very much about, uh, both, uh, about societal construction of race, and all that was really worked out in a in a trial for miscegenation on one of the uh, that was uh, that took place against one of the descendants of of Newton Rachel. His name was Davis Knight, 
and he was charged with uh, miscegenation, marrying across the color line because he married a, a white woman. And when and, was this? Uh, pardon? When was this? 1946. Okay. Yeah. And so that uh, in that trial, you, you mentioned that's not uh, long before Ethel Knight's book was published. That that's right. Yeah. Attacks, but Newton Knight's own uh, grandson, I think, uh, or son, Tom his Knight. Son. Yeah. Uh, wrote his own book about it, and he took a very different view. Well, yes, he wrote uh, Tom Thomas Jefferson Knight, uh, Newt's son. He wrote a book about his father actually in the in the thirties before the trial, and then he republished it in nineteen forty six. But he he didn't uh, he didn't address the issue at all. He wanted that was something he was very ashamed of. He was one of the few members of Newton Knight's immediate family who did not cross the color line. Both his brother and his sister did marry children of Rachel Knight, they crossed the color line. So he had separated himself from the family, yet he still wanted to celebrate his father as a hero of the Civil War. So he simply wrote a book about his dad that didn't mention any of the racial uh, angle, the, the racial aspect of the family history. So it became a battle between Tom Knight, who wanted to defend the unionism of his father, and Ethel Knight, who wanted to condemn the unionism of his father, and she did that by bringing in the story about uh, Rachel and, and the interracial relationship. But in fact, Tom Knight had been a witness at the miscegenation trial against Davis Knight, and he was forced to admit then that members of his family had crossed the color line. And you read the transcript, and it's just very painfully evident at how much he's, he is still ashamed of that whole aspect of the life. So the family is incredibly uh, divided, and I think still is today over its black and its white branches of the family, and then branches that simply have mixed ancestry but choose to identify themselves in different ways than society might identify them. And uh, you know, I suppose it's a timely thing, as race is, is always timely in American politics and American culture, but uh, this question of how one identifies oneself and uh, you know, what it means to be white or what it means to be black are, are, are questions that continue to come up, and here we see it coming up in, in life-or-death situations for these people. The uh, uh, I, I was also reminded of, of the movie CSA. Uh, I wonder if you are familiar with that. No, the, I'm not. It's a, a mock documentary imagining if the Confederacy had won. Uh, oh, I haven't seen that. Oh. Uh, it, it's, it's worth digging up. I'll recommend it to our listeners as uh, an interesting uh, look at the the, the Civil War angle doesn't take very long, but then it traces the history of the United States up to the 21st century, uh, throwing in occasional commercials for the sponsors of, of extremely racialized products, wow. uh, many that of which turn out great. at the end of the movie to be actual products from the 20th century. Uh, and uh, I bring it up because without, well, this will be a spoiler if you don't want to know how the movie ends, don't listen, uh, but a, a figure who becomes a, a Confederate national leader and, and adheres to the continuing racial policies, discovers uh, through genealogical uh, revelations that, in fact, he has African ancestry. Mm -hmm. uh, his reaction is, is quite different from the one you mentioned where your, your, your uh, friends were, were, were interested. Yeah. Uh, in the movie, the guy <laughs> takes a much different response, but you'll have to see the film. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think that would be so interesting. And one of the things that I really learned as I did this research is just how easily that could happen. I mean, you know, in our society, it's been very typical to focus on light-skinned African-Americans or light-skinned people who have 
African ancestry. But one thing we haven't done often is turn that mirror over and say, doesn't that also mean that a lot of people who uh, are, are white today do have African uh, ancestry and don't even dream of it? Uh, I guess I think I said that backwards. What I was trying to say is that African-American people we, we accept very readily oftentimes have Anglo ancestry or European ancestry. Right. But we, we very seldom uh, stop to contemplate just how many people who, uh, who have always been identified in their lives as white, never would have thought of anything different, do in fact have African ancestry and various other ancestries. I think a lot of the DNA projects are now really bearing that out. I think that would certainly be the case. Let's let's go back to 1864 for a minute here, uh, where, where Ethel Knight and Tom Knight in the 1940s and 50s are arguing about whether Newton Knight was a hero for his unionism or a, a scoundrel for it. Uh, in 1864, he was the leader of, of the group that, that is named after him, the Knight Company. Uh, this gets up to maybe 100 men at one time? Upwards to there. I'd say I'd even go so far as to say maybe 125. But in the lists that I've seen, I don't think it's ever gone above 99. I think I could, I could put together a list of 99 actual names. And, and do they actually march about and, and fight as a military company? They do. They, they, they muster. They do those sorts of things. Um, you know, Newton Knight sued the U.S. government, or petitioned, I should say, the government for compensation as a unionist up until 1900. And it's hard to know how much uh, he, or whether he exaggerated, but he described his, his unit as being an official military unit that did all of the things of a regular military unit, and that their only problem was that they had never managed to be uh, officially mustered into the Union Army, but that they had tried to do so, that Jasper Collins, in fact, had gone all the way up into Tennessee trying to, uh, to negotiate and make connections with uh, Union generals and, uh, and bring about the mustering in of this unit into uh, the Union Army. So certainly they, uh, they have always claimed that they went through all of the, the regular rituals of, of, a, of a true Army unit. Did they, did they fight and did they t- suffer casualties? Oh, yes, they did. Uh, they, they had sporadic ballot, uh, battles throughout the war after, their, after being formed in 1863. Uh, and, in fact, Newt Knight recorded each and every one of them. They're recorded in his own handwriting in surviving uh, documents that he later uh, used to petition for, comp- for compensation. Uh, so they had uh, a number of battles. I think it's six or seven that they considered the most important. And the most important one was against Colonel Robert Lowry, who was uh, sent in to um, sent in by the Confederacy to put them down. I mean, you, if you go into the official records of the uh, of the Confederacy, you, you see all sorts of uh, correspondence going on about what's going on down there in Mississippi in that Jones County area. And so, um, both uh, Major uh, Maori and then Major Major Lowry, their names rhyme, which only makes it more confusing. Mm-hmm. They're both sent in within a two-month period to try to put them down once and for all, and they do uh, a pretty good job of decimating the Knight Company. They do manage to uh, execute ten men. Ten men are executed. The rest of them either flee down the Mississippi River and make it to New Orleans where they join the Union Army, or a good number of them are forced back into the Confederacy. It's either you know go back into the Confederacy uh, or be executed, and they do that. They end up prisoners of war, many of them. Uh, after being, you know, after fighting at Kennesaw Mountain. And then there's about 20, I think, is my best estimate, of men, including Newton Knight and Jasper Collins, the two major figures, who just remain in the woods and are never subdued, never caught, and uh, are, you know, are still there 
as a unit still i don't know how much how how well organized they are they're much smaller uh after lowry raids in april 1864 after that raid they're much smaller but they still they're never they're never uh eradicated they're never put down they're never captured and they do uh inflict casualties on the, the confederates as well yes they do yeah so it's a it's a real war we have going on here in yes, county. Yes. Well, we're going to take another short break. We'll be back in just a moment with Vicki Bynum, author of Free State of Jones, Mississippi's Longest Civil War, and other books on the era. We'll come back and talk in just a moment on Civil War Talk Radio. Mm-hmm. 